0: joining this morning in the celebration of Earth Day, an event that was launched in 1970, where we set aside one day, April 22nd at least, one day, to think about our planet and to advocate for its well-being. As a way in this morning, we're going to look at a story in which Jesus uh, does a remarkable uh, substitution He substitutes, so there is a moment in the history of Israel when everything is as awesome as it can possibly be. They have attained success, and it's success in the metrics typically used by cultures. Big structures, a lot of money, dominance, power. And so that is their go-to time for looking to God. Like, God helped us achieve success We need to study that, examine it, look at it, understand how that happens, see if we can replicate it. Jesus comes along and says, yeah, you would actually do better if you wanted to understand God by looking at this. Now, full disclosure, I plucked this from the flowers out in the front (laughs) on my way in this morning, but you know... If you want to have flowers on your table, they got to come from somewhere. And so we're going to look at this substitution that Jesus makes and try to understand where it comes from him as a way of leaning into his ethic of the natural world and how to perceive, encounter, come upon God in those spaces. So he's in the midst of a conversation or an instruction, a teaching that he's giving to people. And as a part of it, this is from the account of the life of Jesus, Luke chapter 12, verse 22. He says this, and what I want want you to hear today is in part the instruction itself, but again, as the subtext, where is Jesus saying, if you want to learn about God, what God thinks, what God has to say, here is a good go-to place for that. Okay, <clears throat> And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious for the soul, what you might eat, or for the body, what you might wear. For the soul is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, they who have neither storehouse nor granary, and God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And who among you, by being anxious, can add an inch to the span of your life? If, therefore, you are incapable of the least of things, why are you anxious concerning the rest? Consider the lilies, how they neither spin nor weave, but I tell you, Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. And if God thus clothes the grass, which is in the field today and tomorrow, is flung into an oven, how much more so you, you of little faith. And you, do not seek after what you might eat and what you might drink, and do not fret, For these things all the nations of the world seek after. But your God knows what you have need of. Seek after his kingdom, and these things will be given to you in addition. Do not be afraid, little flock, because your God has delighted to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make for yourselves purses that do not wear out, an unfailing treasury in the heavens, near which no thief comes, and which no moth destroys. So, fans of the Chicago Cubs have a hard time in life, right? (laughs) Until 2016, we had to look back to 1908. As the last time, you know, well beyond any of our memories. But then 2016 comes along, and we win the World Series. Yes, right. And so we inhabit 2016. And someone might, if they don't know you well, say, "Yeah, but things haven't gone well since then," and you'll get mad, right? And you'll say, oh, but 2016 I watched, I was there, I, you know, maybe I went to a game that season and now you'll claim to have attended the World Series. And, (laughs) And so it's kind of like that, what Jesus is doing in this moment with Solomon. So Jesus is giving an instruction on anxiety related to wealth and accumulation and you know, just how we run after things, what we do. And he's, he's doing it both targeted towards people and larger entities, nations. And it's sandwiched in between conversations about the accumulation of wealth and grand construction projects and how we try to alleviate our anxiety about having enough, which is never actually satisfied, right? And so to address this human propensity towards anxiety and fixing anxiety by accumulation and building, Jesus contrasts the pinnacle moment of the existence for the people of Israel with a flower, a flower, a common flower from the field. And in the instruction of Jesus, in the thought of Jesus, he says the flower wins. You would do better trying to understand how to live in this reality by studying a flower in the field than by studying Solomon. What happened back then? How did we get there? And this would have been poking the bear to these people because they inhabited Solomon. They loved Solomon. They went back to Solomon. Solomon was awesome. The buildings were huge. The boundaries were pushed out. The enemies were quelled. People coming from far and wide to Israel to meet God and the mouthpiece of God in Solomon. (laughs) And yet Jesus says, yeah, I like the flowers better. I'll take them. And understanding Jesus, who he was, what we know of him might help. And trying to get at why he would say that. So what we know of Jesus is that he spends his, he grows up, he spends his formative years as what we would call a Galilean peasant. So Galilee, it's a region in the north country of Judea. uh, The north of modern day Israel. Rural hill country still. uh, There's a lake in the middle of it but it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And in that day and age, too, it would have been super poor. And this is where we get to the peasant part. So peasant cultures have existed across the course of human history. And what typically characterizes them is a deep connection to the land. So peasants, maybe they live in tiny towns and villages, but almost all of what they do is connected to the land. So to crops and agriculture, to flocks and herds, To nature itself, in this region of Galilee, it would have included the Sea of Galilee. So fish, fishing, a big thing. And so there's a connection to the land. So living, for example, almost all living structures would have also housed animals. Maybe a little bit distant, but you live with them. You're in amongst them. You know them. You know them by name. You relate to them. You take them out. You bring them back. Also a deep relationship to the land itself, to the cycles of planting and sowing and harvesting, being in and amongst nature. And in this case, a lake. Going to the lake, going to the shore, knowing people who fish for a living, interacting with fish and fishing, traveling across the lake. And so it's pretty clear that interaction with nature and the natural world becomes a deeply embedded thing for Jesus. He's, one of the things that I think bothers his friends the most is they wake up in the morning and he's gone to what the writers call a lonely place to pray. You know, so he doesn't go to the city, doesn't go to the town, doesn't go to the structures. A lonely place. And lonely has a little hint of sadness, <laughs> but I think Jesus just liked it. He goes to a quiet place in nature, and they have to search for him, and they find him. When Jesus has to do his deepest grieving, his friend John is beheaded. It throws everything into disarray. Are they next? We've lost him. What do we do? How do we regroup? He has his disciples get into a boat, and they cross the lake to go to a lonely place. But it had to have been a place that they knew. Right? You're not going to pick for a grief retreat someplace that you don't know. Well, let's try this spot. Jesus is going to pick a place where he knows he will be received into nature. A place he knows and is aware of where he will be able to cleanse his mind, clear out the clutter, have a conversation, meditate, encounter God. So they go to a remote place on the other side of the lake, the lake that many of his disciples would have known because they fished it for their livelihood. And so many of the metaphors of Jesus, too, the metaphors and images that he presents as ways that he has come to understand God, right? He's not just picking things out of the air or Googling for what's a good metaphor for God. This is how he has lived his life. So when he talks about fish and fishing, when he talks about sheep and shepherding, when he talks about crops and grain and cycles and weeds and all of it, these are deeply embedded metaphors in him because of his lived life. right? So this is a part of what it would have meant in his formative years to be a Galilean peasant. The other part is that it would have put him at odds with wealth and accumulation and the building of grand structures. So, peasant also means a loss of autonomy. People who live as peasants are in some way ruled over or dominated by people more powerful than them, people more wealthy. Typically, people connected to government in a way that gives them power. And this would have been the case in spades for Galilean peasants. They would have been taxed on three different levels by Rome, by the local ruler, (coughs) and by the temple. So money is being extracted from them all the time. Being a peasant also meant a loss of autonomy in terms of what you could do. You could be conscripted at any moment into a construction project that the local ruler or leader wanted to engage in. And this happened multiple times during the formative years of Jesus. So Herod, for example, one of the Herods is the ruler of the territory that Jesus would have lived in while he is coming into adulthood. And Herod crafts grand civil engineering projects to impress Rome, right? It is a truism across the course of human history that grand civil engineering projects are always horrible for poor people. We have these monuments that exist, and we look at them admire them from different cultures at different times across the course of human history, and we marvel at them. Oh, that's amazing. How did they do that? Well, they enslaved people who suffered and struggled, who were ripped out of their lives, many of whom died. And it continues, right? It's a part of our dark history. These lovely structures in Washington, D.C., who built them? The railroads across the country, the freeways that we build today that are put through the neighborhoods of the poor because they don't have power to say no. And so Jesus is a part of this. Herod builds a city in Galilee or near Galilee, that's named after the Roman emperor. And people are conscripted to build it and resources are taken to build it. Money, wealth, all sorts of stuff going in that direction, disrupting the lives of powerless people all around him. (laughs) And so then Jesus, in his growing up, encounters Solomon. Now, we don't know exactly what caused Jesus to feel about Solomon in the way that he did. And we don't know deeply what he felt. But Jesus mentioned Solomon twice, and in neither case does Solomon come out favorably. So one time Jesus is giving a message, and part of the history, the mythology, the lore of Israel, is that uh, the Queen of Sheba visited Israel, when Solomon was king, the queen of Sheba comes and she brings huge wealth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It's this great honor and oh, the important people are bowing down to Israel and to the mouthpiece of God and Jesus says, yes, she's going to judge you to his listeners. She's going to judge you critically because one standing before you is greater than Solomon. (laughs) You know, So Jesus is like, yeah, I'm better than him. And you're not listening to me. And so that's not going to go well for you. Right? And then there's this moment with Solomon. In this story, Solomon arrayed in all his splendor. And when you encounter the splendor of Solomon in the Old Testament, it's quite something. The description of it is extensive and elaborate, the expanse of the empire, the the quashing of foes, the accumulation of untold wealth. And it maps, too, onto buildings and to building projects. So Solomon is the one who completes the building of the temple, the temple of God. It's this civil engineering project, takes seven years to finish now, it's also the case that Solomon builds his own house, which takes 13 years to build and is at least twice as big as the temple, whatever meaning you want to make of that. But the description of the dedication of the temple is just mind blowing. So there's a parade as the temple is about to be dedicated, and it's described in lavish detail in the text. Animals are sacrificed during this parade, it says, too many to count. On the other side of the celebration, there's a post celebration party at which it says, We'd sacrifice some animals then too 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. You know, see, so you wonder, well, we could count them. What is too many to count? And so Jesus, with all the other Israelites, encounters this Jesus. A peasant Galilean encounters this. And it becomes clear that Jesus just in general does not have deep affection for structures, for these grand structures. He, one of the things that gets him in most trouble is his relationship with the Jerusalem temple of his day. So the Solomon temple would have been destroyed... Right, but then rebuilt as the Jerusalem temple, which was another house of God. It would have been diminished in comparison to the Solomon temple. But Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a Galilean peasant. And there, he's walking along with his friends one day, and he's saying things that make everybody nervous, which he always does. And so somebody, to deflect attention, sees the building and says, Oh, but look, isn't that an amazing building? And Jesus says, Yeah, I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to raise that thing to the ground raise my own again in three, you know, erect my own in three days. And it comes back to him. This is one of the accusations that haunts him as he is put on trial and ultimately executed is his his seeming lack of affection for the Jerusalem temple as a thing. And so in this moment, Jesus aware of what it means to be deeply poor, of what it means to be controlled and dominated by power, and of what it means to inhabit nature. Jesus says, if you want to learn about God, what's valuable to God, important to God, how God would advise you, how God would alleviate your anxiety... You don't need to engage in grand civil engineering projects. You don't need to follow this lust for controlling and dominating the natural world and making a road here, too. Just take a walk in the woods. Just go into nature. Just look at a flower. Sit on the beach. Make your friends some breakfast on the beach. And I want to be clear, I don't think Jesus is saying you can learn all you need to know about God from nature. I think he's saying you can learn a lot of things about God, but it's just a place where you can clear your head, where your worries and cares can drift away, where you can find inner peace and tranquility, where all the anxieties that plague you can diminish so that you can accurately perceive the presence of God, the voice of God, coming to you in that space. For me, it's always been water, (laughs) going to a place that has water, water I can sit by, water I can get in. It's just weird, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So I grew up in Michigan, Holland, Michigan, pretty close to the lake, and Before I had any real conception of God, it still was a place I would go to the beach. Any time of day, sit on the beach, watch the sunset over the beach, swim. My friends and I loved to swim. We would swim out a half a mile out into the lake and just be lost in the water. And I, I was a little more like my friends. We'd be on a sailboat and they'd be partying, and I'd be sitting at the front of the prow of the boat just looking at the water. And It'd be night, and the stars would be reflecting off the smoothest glass water. And it was just a transcendent spiritual experience. I understand better now the spirituality of it than I did back then. Then it just felt like, this is awesome, but I'm weird, because why isn't everybody else doing this with me, you know? (laughs) but that is just a go-to place for me to do that. Almost any natural setting. I can do it in my backyard. We have a hummingbird feeder. I can watch the birds come, dive-bomb each other to try to get the honey, listen to the buzzing. It's not quite as good, because I know that there are a lot of my dirty dishes in the kitchen. You know, it's harder to push that away. Getting away, going to a lonely place, works better, but something magical happens. It's beyond explanation. Maybe it's because I am of, from the earth in a real way that the Bible gives thumbs up to. I am of the clay. But worry diminishes, clutter diminishes. I can come to a place Where I might see something of God in what I am witnessing and perceiving. I might also just get to a headspace where I can hear God better. Perceive God, feel God. Something that's been percolating in the back of my brain can come to the fore. God can bring clarity to it, can relieve my anxiousness. I feel like that's the invitation for us here. Our planet is in trouble. There are big things that we ought to do differently to make it better. You and I can do all sorts of things to engage with that. But one place that our faith can invite us into is just a deeper inhabiting of it. So that when you think of nature, instead of it being something (laughs) that you want to dominate a little bit or pave or build a road into, it becomes a go-to place for you to perceive God, to let the clutter go away, to have a quiet space. Not only where you hear God a little bit better, but that you love it. I love nature. I love the sun setting behind the trees. I love quiet, still water. All of these things are deeply in my soul at this point. And so when I see these things, I long for their goodness, right? If there is one marginalized, voiceless entity in the world around us, it is the earth. It cannot speak on its own behalf. And so our calling to champion the marginalized and voiceless applies to the earth as much as to anything else. So I welcome the band to come forward um, as we shift to the rest of our service this morning, uh, we'll celebrate communion together. We practice a welcoming form of communion here. If you want to connect with Jesus in this particular way, you're welcome to join us. There are stations at the front and the back. There's a little card on the table if you want a guided prayer experience as a part of your communion. But as we make this shift, let me pray for us together. Um, to enter into the invitation of Jesus. So Jesus, we're grateful for your lived life, for your awareness of our anxiousness and how we try to fix it. But just that what you offer is so simple, your lived experience of a simple sanctuary, an easy to access place that just works as a way to become quiet, as a way to be able to hear and perceive and know God. I pray that we would find ways to access the natural world and that we would come to love it as you did, that we would have in our hearts deep affection for the natural world around us. Amen.